How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our study this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone has the opportunity to make sure that you're in fellowship and ready to study the Word, ready to reflect upon what God has to teach us in this section of Jude. So we'll bow our heads, and after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can come together at this time to study your word, to reflect upon what you have revealed to us, and to be encouraged by what Jude writes, to be challenged, to be faithful in contending for the faith, not only in terms of false doctrine that comes from the outside, but also just within our own souls to stand firm for the truth that we know and in our own lives. And, Father, as we study these things, help us to understand the importance of your word and understanding your word and being uh, strengthened in our understanding that we do have your word as revealed uh, by you through the writers of Scripture in the 66 books of the Bible that we have today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Jude, the third verse, and we have been studying the major doctrine that is taught here, which is uh, that that Jude is writing this epistle as an exhortation, that is, as a challenge to believers to contend for the faith. Just to review briefly the exegesis of this passage, since it may have been some time since we had our previous lesson, Jude writes to this congregation, probably the same people that uh, Peter wrote in in, uh, 1 Peter. Peter wrote to warn of coming false teaching. There are a lot of similarities between the two epistles. Jude is writing to this congregation because now this false teaching is in their presence. So he writes that uh, at one point he was going to uh, initially write about their common salvation. This tells us a little bit about the process of inspiration and how God the Holy Spirit works in and through the writers of Scripture. And we'll see that in more detail today as we focus on the doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy. But Jude begins, uh, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. Now, that almost implies that he had, was writing or had begun to write something. But it might be easier to understand this as when I was uh, making every effort. So he was preparing at least, probably doesn't tell us that he'd already begun, but that he's preparing to write uh, to this particular congregation when something happened. He was uh, making every effort or every diligence to write, and then he says, I found it necessary. Literally, this means in the, uh, in the Greek, I had a compulsion or I, I had a necessity. Somehow, God the Holy Spirit, in working in and through uh, Jude, may impressed upon him that he needed instead to write about something else. Now, this kind of internal impression or compulsion is something that is distinct to an apostolic ministry because this is the operation, as we'll see in our definition of inspiration, 
that uh, at the very beginning, the definition states God, the Holy Spirit, so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture. This is a unique type of ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, who is working through these writers of Scripture to produce that which would be uh, the inerrant, infallible Word of God. That's a unique type of ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, that was restricted only to those who had certain revelatory gifts in the early church during the apostolic period. This is not the normal operation of God, the Holy Spirit, in the church age. People who make that mistake have slipped into the error of mysticism, and there's no basis for that today. God directly communicating to the believer he does all his communication through the Word of God. And one reason for that is because there's no control, there's no objective validation control today as you had in the early church. There was uh, a control point in the early church made up of the apostles and prophets, those who had revelatory gifts who could test or validate that which those claims to God speaking to or through some individual. Uh, without a control point, without uh, apostles and prophets present today, there's no validation other than the Word of God. And so it is the Word of God that is the test. So when people come up and say, God, move me, the Holy Spirit moved me to do X or to do Y, that may be just sloppy verbiage that has been picked up in the church, but how do you know that? How do you know it's not just your sin nature? How do you know it's not something internal? How do you know it's not something in your own mind that has uh, done that? And if your answer is, well, I know, uh, then you're just basing it upon your own internal knowledge. There's no objective, uh, objective validation point, and yet throughout Scripture, God never works in private without uh, uh, without validating it through external control points. For example, in Deuteronomy 13 and 18, there are tests for a prophet in the Old Testament. No one had the right to say, God spoke to me to do X, Y, or Z without there being a test point. And in mysticism, which is the pagan modus operandi for uh, claiming divine communication, there's no control point. It's just how one feels. One is so impressed with one's own internal subjective experience that he says, this is what the Holy Spirit told me to do. Well, how do you know that? How can you say for sure that that, that is the Holy Spirit and not something else? And the truth is, we don't know. So uh, this gives us a window into the operation of the Holy Spirit in Jude and the other apostles as they're writing Scripture. So he has this compulsion, this necessity, this this put on him, this pressure realization put on him by God the Holy Spirit. And so he changes the focal point of his epistle, and he's going to write to exhort. This tells us that it is this is a, a challenge, an exhortation type of epistle, not necessarily an instructional or didactic one. We talked a lot about uh, exhortation and a an exhortation type of epistle when we looked at at Hebrews. It is something that uh, could have been uh, preached. It was with Hebrews. I don't think that Jude bears those marks, though, as something that was first preached and then written. He's writing to challenge them to contend earnestly for 
the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. I pointed out from this quote from uh, Edmund Hebert that the main idea in uh, this word that epangonizomai uh, is the idea of the expenditure of all of one's energy to accomplish a particular task, to contend vigorously for for the faith. Now, this doesn't mean to contend contentiously. It means, to, though, to to strive to accomplish a task. One great illustration of this from church history comes from Athanasius. Athanasius was born in uh, 296 uh, A.D. in um, in Egypt. He rose to a uh, rank of bishop of uh, uh, Alexandria in Egypt and about the time that uh, tremendous controversy burst upon the scene in the in the early church and this was a controversy related to the trinity related to first and foremost related to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and who Jesus Christ was before he was born in relationship to his full deity and especially his eternality about the time that uh, Athanasius was ordained to the ministry one of the uh elders or presbyters in the church in uh, Alexandria began to teach a doctrine that there was a time when Christ was not. It is called Arianism after this individual whose name was Arius. It is a precursor to the same doctrine that is taught today by the Jehovah's Witnesses. And uh, in Arius' thinking that there was a, that God the Father is eternal, but at some point in eternity past, he created uh, the second person of the Trinity so that Jesus Christ is not eternal, which means that he isn't. Jesus would not have been full deity. Well, uh, Athanasius really understood the issues to this, and this became quite a theological controversy that threatened to divide the church in this uh, new Christian Roman Empire after uh, Constantine had risen to uh, emperor and legitimized uh, Christianity and uh, decreed that it would be the religion of the Roman Empire, and he wanted peace in his empire, so he convened a council that met in Nicaea, a small town that was not too far from uh, Constantinople, which was the uh, capital of the eastern part of the empire, and all of these bishops coming from all over Christendom, which was the Roman Empire, met there to to uh, discuss, argue, debate the issues related to the uh, full deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. As is true in many church councils, there were just a few people who understood the issues and most people did not and didn't have the wherewithal either intellectually or biblically to make decisions. So they're swayed emotionally. They're swayed by the rhetoric and the oratory of the debates. But there was Athanasius and a few bishops that surrounded him who clearly understood that if Jesus isn't fully God and fully eternal, then he can't pay the uh, substitutionary price for sin. And then on the other side, you had uh, Arius and his followers who taught that there was a time when Christ was not. And just by, as a side point, Arius was a little songwriter, and he wrote choruses. And these choruses were little ditties that were very popular, that uh, were sung all over the empire. And it's just an, one example of how music is used in both good ways and bad ways, and this was a bad way in which it was used to promote uh, false false doctrine.
Well, in 325, the Council of Nicaea met, and they approved the Athanasian position. But this did not end the controversy, and the controversy continued. And so Constantine began to put pressure upon uh, Athanasius to back off of his uh, of his belief that uh, of the Trinity that Jesus was fully God and fully eternal, and that it was uh, uh, necessary for him to be that way. And this is exactly what the, the scriptures uh, taught. So Constantine ordered him to um, allow the Arians to join the church and to be full members of the church, and this upset Arius quite a bit. The story is told that he traveled, uh, that is, uh, upset Athanasius quite a bit, and Athanasius traveled to Constantinople, and when Constantine was out in his chariot, uh, Athanasius planted himself in front of uh, Constantine's uh, chariot and the horses and grabbed the bridles of the horses and demanded that the emperor retract his order. This shows the courage that he had, but he's contending for the faith. He contended for it at the Council of Nicaea. He's contending for it now. Of course, it didn't work, and he is deposed from his position as Bishop of Alexandria, and he went into exile. This was the first of several exiles that... Um, Athanasius experienced. After Constantine's death, he returned to Alexandria, but not for long. When he was restored to his position as bishop, but again, uh, the Arians were given power and had him exiled again in 339. And he again spent, this time he spent several years in Rome, where his teaching attracted a number of crowds, and he uh, gathered more support for his position and Again, he was restored to his pulpit in 346. Uh, he was welcomed, but ten years later, uh, he was again deposed and went into exile. Uh, this was his third exile, and then even again some six or seven years later, after he once again was restored to his pulpit, he went into a fourth uh, exile. Eventually, he returned to his pulpit and eventually died at the age of 77. So that uh, 17 years of his 45 years of ministry were spent away from the, his congregation in exile. Uh, great example of one who faithfully endured and persevered in the midst of uh, opposition and contended for the faith. That is that set body of doctrine which has been passed down through the scriptures from generation to generation. I pointed out last time that we contend in two ways. We contend internally. There's always that battle between our ears, which is the primary battlefield of spiritual warfare, where we have to contend for the truth in our own lives and using it and applying it in our own lives. And then the second field of contention or contending or struggling for the faith is in the field of the of the church internally sometimes those who come in i pointed out uh, paul's warning to the ephesian uh, leaders that there would be those from among them who would rise up to to lead the church astray and so we have to contend sometimes with those inside the church but most often with those who are uh, outside the church I pointed out a modern example of this in the uh, fundamentalism in the 19th century and up into the 20th century uh, in the battle with liberalism and emphasizing the basic fundamentals of the faith. We need to determine just what are the essentials, the core doctrines that are 
essential to biblical Christianity. And it begins with the authority in terms of the inerrancy and infallibility of the Scripture. This leads us to a literal genesis. I think hermeneutics, how we interpret the Scripture, always goes hand in glove with our view of authority. I uh, pointed this out in terms of discussion some last time on the uh, meetings that were held in the late 70s in Chicago and the statements that came out in terms of the Chicago uh, statement on uh, the inerrancy of Scripture and later a Chicago statement on, on hermeneutics. So we have to believe in a literal genesis and a liter- literal mi- miracles, uh, the virgin birth. Just a point on literal genesis. This is being taken away again today. And it's taken away in a very sophisticated uh, manner um, through the use of various ploys in hermeneutics, trying to argue that uh, in the ancient world that that uh, these literary devices were used in order to express certain truth. And so Genesis, the six days in Genesis 1 are not literal six 24-hour consecutive days, but they're just organizational, literary organizational elements uh, designed to teach a general point. But what we believe is that the very words of God, down to the very syllables, plurals, uh, singulars, cases, etc., that that is inspired by God as well, and the details are inspired by God. It's not just the ideas. It's the very words themselves are inspired by God and should be taken in a literal manner. But nevertheless, there are those who get around that through this ploy of using a different kind of hermeneutic. This is the case at Dallas Theological Seminary, for example. In the Old Testament department, there's only one Old Testament uh, man uh, by the name of uh, Eugene Merrill who still holds to literal 26, 24-hour consecutive days of Genesis 6. I mean, excuse me, Genesis 1. Everybody else holds to some sort of literary framework uh, viewpoint, but that is... To, the, 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 the attempt is made that that is, that is consistent with an inerrancy view. This is where hermeneutics takes away from uh, inerrancy. We also have the belief of a literal virgin conception and birth, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, and a literal future uh, return as well as a substitutionary atonement for, for sin pointed out that the attack today still comes from the influence of Darwinism as well as the rise of higher uh, higher criticism. This is particularly a problem in two areas. One is what I just pointed out. It's a major problem in how Genesis 1 through 11 is interpreted, but it's also a problem in understanding uh, issues in the synoptic gospels. The, the synoptic gospels, that term synoptic refers to like synonym. There are similar gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are considered the synoptic gospels. And there are times when they don't seem to agree. And there are various ways in which these are understood and explained uh, by scholars. And the answers are there, but there are some that, um, that seek again to to give away too much territory. There's been a battle going on for at least the last 20 years in the New Testament department. At, at again at Dallas Seminary and at other seminaries, Denver Seminary, uh, Talbot, some other schools. A book came out in the late 90s, edited by Robert Thomas and David Farnell. David Farnell just received his PhD from Dallas Theological Seminary in. Uh, uh, in the New Testament department, and this was a real expose 
uh, uh, of what was going on, the debate going on inside that department. And in many ways, there are the, most of them were, in my opinion, were giving away too much territory in how they were trying to explain apparent conflicts in the Gospels. And ultimately, it goes back to how well you understand inspiration and are committed to that foundational principle of verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture that is taught uh, so clearly in the Word of God. So let's begin with a uh, study of the doctrine of inspiration. What does the Bible say about itself? How was the Bible given to us in the process of its origin in the mind of God and how it is revealed in and through fallen human beings from the Old Testament to the New Testament by means of God the Holy Spirit so that what is written down uh, originally by the writer of Scripture was without error in everything that it addressed. We're not claiming that it was a biology textbook, a geography textbook, a history textbook, but when it touches on these matters, it is accurate and without error. And you either start with this assumption, in which case you're basically looking at, you come to the Word of God, and if you see an apparent conflict or what you think is a conflict, you're saying, hmm, okay, I don't understand enough. This is the Word of God, so there is a resolution to this conflict. I just don't know what it is. I don't know enough about the original circumstances, the situation, the vocabulary, but I'm going to presume that there's no conflict. I just don't know enough to be able to give an answer. And those who come from a position of cynicism or skepticism who do not believe presuppositionally that God can reveal himself supernaturally to man, it's called a a bias or a presupposition of anti-supernaturalism. And so from the starting point, before they ever look at any evidence, they, they, they're they looking at the text of Scripture and say, well, it can't be. It just can't, by definition, be inerrant because that can't happen. God can't control things in that way. So they have a small view of God and a very large view of man. And this small view of God always uh, means that they, they blow man up to, to, be, to capabilities larger than he is, and they end up treating the book of the, the books of the Bible as basically just uh, the products of human authorship without divine oversight or divine control. But that's not what the Word of God claims for itself anywhere uh, within the Scripture. So let's begin with the definition and then look at a few key uh, passages that help us to understand uh, how the Bible uh, presents itself. The Bible presents itself as the Word of God without error, thus saith the Lord. And it is that statement used again and again and again in the Old Testament that gives us the confidence that this is God's word, not man's word about God. Those are essentially the two positions. You either believe that this is the inerrant, infallible word that God revealed to us through human agents, or you believe that somehow this is nothing more than human beings writing about their experiences with God. Those There may be some variations between those two poles, but those are basically the two positions. So let's look at a definition of inspiration. Now, the word inspiration that we use is is not... Uh, it's not really the best word. Sometimes someone may speak of 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 uh, 
of, of William Shakespeare as being inspired as he wrote poetry or as he wrote drama. We may, we may think of someone who is an, a, a brilliant architect, for example, Christ, Christopher Wren, and just think, oh, he, he must have been inspired when he designed uh, St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Or we think of uh, Michelangelo. And we think of his uh, beautiful uh, sculpture of, of David and say, oh, he must have been inspired. That's not what we mean when we're talking about Scripture. So this is not the best word. The Greek word is the word theopneustos. The, it's a compound word that Paul coined. Theos is the first part, which means God. And then the second word, neustos, comes from the word pneuma, which is the word for spirit uh, or the word for breath or wind. And it has that idea of God breathing. God, therefore, is the subject or the actor, the one who is acting in this process and the one who is breathing into and through man. So there is a spiration there, which is what we get in the word inspiration, but it's not from man. It's not from man's intellect or man's ability or his own innovative skills. It is that God exhales through the human writers of Scripture who, in a sense, inhale it from God and then exhale it through their writings. So this concept of breathing helps us to understand a little bit about the dynamics here. But the whole process, we understand, is overseen by God the Holy Spirit. This is clear from Second Peter one twenty one, which we'll look at in just a minute. But in Second Peter, but let me give you the definition. And then we'll go to Second uh, Timothy three fifteen through seventeen first. We believe that God, the Holy Spirit, so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture that without waiving their human intelligence, vocabulary, individuality, literary style, personality, personal feelings, or any other human factor. His complete and coherent message to mankind was recorded with perfect accuracy in the original languages of Scripture, the very words bearing the authority of divine authorship. Now, that is says a lot. What we believe is that God is the author of Scripture. He did it through human beings so that he preserved and protected whatever it was that they wrote from any error in the original languages. Now, that's very important. Some people say, well, we don't have the original documents, so how do we know? Well, that's an important question, and we'll look at that as we go through this. But but if you don't start with an inerrant original, then if there, if there are X number of errors in the original, then you have X times whatever uh, number of errors in copies, and you never really know how much is 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 complete error, how little, what little errors there were in the beginning. So if you start off with an errant document, then you never really know how much is true. And so it's extremely important as to whether or not the original autographs were without error or not. We'll break it down as we go through this in each, each phrase, each clause, because it's important to understand so that we can have a clear under, clear perception, understanding of the authority of scripture, because this, that's what this goes to, is the authority of the word of God. Is this really God's word or is it just man's word? And there's a huge difference between those two positions. 
Well, first of all, let's look at a key passage, 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. Paul writes to Timothy, and well, let's just look at 16 and 17 to begin with. He writes to Timothy, and he says, All Scripture, and it's translated as inspired by God, it should be understood to mean all Scripture is breathed out by God. It has its origin in God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate. And that word adequate sounds maybe a little weak to us, but it has the idea of sufficient. It is complete, maybe adequate, maybe complete, equipped for every good work, not for most, not for some, for every good work. So it's sufficient for every good work. So there's a couple of corollaries that go along with this, and one corollary is that the Word of God is sufficient. It doesn't miss anything. There's not some issue, some problem in life that you're going to run into that the Word of God doesn't address. It gives you everything you need. It is sufficient for every good work. And so we can we can rely upon that. But one of the things that we first see here is that when, when uh, Paul is writing here and he says all Scripture, at the time that he wrote, he's primarily thinking in terms of the Old Testament, but by this time that he's writing, and maybe um, 65 or 66 A.D., this is the last epistle that he's writing, and most other scripture, uh, New Testament scripture, has been written, but not all. Revelation hasn't been written yet. Uh, first uh, uh, Peter hasn't been. Uh, I mean, excuse me. First, second, third John hasn't been written yet. Uh, the Gospel of John uh, may not have been written yet. And so not everything has uh, has been written, uh, but he, this would apply to any scripture, any holy writing that has uh, its origin uh, in God. And we look at the context in that first verse, 2 Timothy 3.15, where Paul is talking to Timothy, and he says um, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And those sacred writings are the scripture that he refers to in 3.16. And at the time that he was a child, there was no New Testament yet. And so that uh, context tells us that that the primary focus that Paul has on the word all scripture is Old Testament scripture. But he's making a universal statement here, so it doesn't exclude New Testament scripture, but the context looks at his primary focus being upon uh, Old Testament Scripture. And so the Old Testament itself, he claims, is sufficient for every good work. But, of course, we know that it was incomplete in the sense that the New Testament had not yet been revealed, and so we can go to the New Testament. But in the, in the time in which Paul's writing, what most people had for a Bible was the Septuagint, was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. He's claiming sufficiency even for that, even though it is not yet completed with all of the New Testament uh, re- revelation. Now, when we look at the definition here and we, uh, and we break it down, we realize that uh, uh, it starts off with just the statement that all... Uh, scripture is inspired or is breathed out by God. Now that uses the term God here in just a sort of generic sense that speaks of, uh, of deity, and it would speak of the entire trinity. And indeed, 
all members of the Trinity are involved in some way in the process of the giving of Scripture. Remember, Jesus is called the Logos, the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word uh, was with God, and the Word was God. And then later in John 1.14, John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and no one has seen the Father at any time, but the Logos, he is the one who has exegeted or explained him. So God the Son is the physical, literal revelation, uh, physical logos, uh, comparable to the written logos. But it is specifically the responsibility of God the Holy Spirit in the process of inspiration. And we see this in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. There we read... Peter saying, because we know that know this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Now we look at that word interpretation and we think of the process we're talking about today where we come to read the Scripture and we're determining what it means. And what the way Peter's using it here is that that when there was a prophecy in the Scripture, this was not uh, that something that originated within the thought framework of the individual writer. It, it wasn't something privately developed or private, that privately originated from the writer of Scripture. Uh, for he goes on to say, for, for prophecy never came by the will of man. So no legitimate prophecy is generated uh, within the individual writer of Scripture. It had an external source. And that's what he explains in the last part of verse 21. But holy men of God, that is men who were set apart to God, that's the meaning of the word holy, but men who were set apart from God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And the word there that is translated move is the uh, same word that's used at the end of Acts when uh, Paul is on his uh, on the ship on his journey to Rome from, uh, from uh, Caesarea by the sea. And uh, it, it talks about the wind blowing upon the sails of the vessel and the, the, the ship being moved across the water. And so it is the power, an unseen power, that is directing the writers of Scripture. So this is uh, like the example we see of, of Jude, that he intended to write one thing, but there is this compulsion, this necessity put upon him to write about something else. So this is that unseen force of God the Holy Spirit who is working on, upon uh, the writers of, of Scripture. So this tells us that there are two authors of every passage of Scripture. There is the human author, but beho- behind him and working in and through him is the divine author who is God the Holy Spirit. This is the primary role of the Holy Spirit within the Trinity. Uh, he is to reveal God's plan to man. Now, the word revelation is central to what we're talking about in, in the Scripture and inspiration and fallibility. Revelation is a word that means to unveil, to disclose, or to uncover something that is previously unknown. So it's the idea of revealing, the idea of disclosing information that otherwise would not be known. So there are different ways in which we come to know things. We come to know things by observing things. We come to know things by contemplating 
uh, things that we do know and extrapolating uh, conclusions from the things that we know, moving in the direction of things we uh, did not know through the use of logic. That's called uh, rationalism or the use of reason. Uh, when we look at experience and what we and sense information, that is called empiricism, looking and looking, uh, coming to an understanding of truth on the basis of what we see, hear, taste, touch, feel. But that's not the only way we come to know things. We come to know things because people also tell us things. People who are in a position of authority who know things tell us things, and that's revelation. So revelation is not uh, uh, contradictory or antagonistic to uh, empiricism or rationalism. And yet that's how the human viewpoint systems all work, because instead of talking about revelation as revelation, they talk about faith. And they say, well, faith is one thing and, and science is something else, and they juxtapose those. But the reality is that empiricism, rationalism, and revelation all presuppose faith. Faith in human ability, faith in some ultimate authority, whether it is the human mind to understand and analyze and accept something is true, or uh, maybe it is the um, uh, faith in the person who tells us uh, something. And so faith either has its object in man and man's ability, and that can be in either rationalism or empiricism as well as in mysticism, and then revelation uh, or faith in uh, the one who tells us something, which in Scripture is, is God. So you have these two authors of Scripture. It's the role of the Holy Spirit to reveal God to us. Revelation means to unveil or disclose something to us that we would not otherwise know. And a great, perfect example of this is uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. There are many things they could learn through observation about the trees in the Garden of Eden. There are many things that they could extrapolate and develop through the use of logic as they studied the trees and and the environment in the Garden of Eden. But there's one thing they could only know through revelation, and that was if they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die. They couldn't learn that through empiricism or rationalism or mysticism. They could only learn that if God spoke to them and told them. And it was that one piece of information that was necessary to order and correctly order and organize all of the other data that they learned through rationalism or empiricism. And so through understanding uh, revelation, it helps us then to uh, properly interpret the data that comes from rationalism and empiricism. So when we negate revelation, which is what human viewpoint does, it really casts a person adrift upon a sea of subjectivity. And there's, if truth is discovered, it is accidental. As my uh, dad used to say, a blind hog uh, discovers an acorn every now and then. It's accidental. It has nothing to do with his inherent uh, epistemological uh, foundation. So revelation means to unveil or to disclose or to uncover what's previously unknown. Another facet of revelation is that it is propositional. It is propositional. Now, proposition is that that phrase, that term, is just means it's it's stated in verbal sentences. It's not through images. It's not through impressions. It is through uh, sentence structure, specific statements. 
And as uh, many of us learned as we were growing up in uh, uh, maybe uh, junior high, that there are different kinds of sentences. You have uh, sentences that ask questions. What time is it? That's a question. It's an interrogative statement. You have other statements that are commands. Uh, get up, eat your breakfast, uh, drink, drink your milk. These are uh, imperatives. These are commands. Then you have uh, statements that, uh, that, that make a statement about reality. The sky is blue. It's raining outside. Uh, water freezes at uh, 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, these are de- called declarative se- sentences, or in logic they're called propositions because they can be validated or invalidated. They can be proved to be true or false. And so that's what we mean when we say that revelation is propositional. It means that the, uh, God's word is expressed through normal sentences using human vocabulary to express concepts they can be validated or uh, invalidated, but they can clearly be understood through uh, uh, the use of our the intellect that God has given us. He's designed us with a mind that's on the se- on His wavelength, so that He can communicate to us and we can uh, respond t- to Him. So we learn from uh, studying the Scripture that the Holy Spirit is the author of both Old Testament and the New Testament passages such as uh, 2 Samuel 23, verses 2 and 3, uh, <clears throat> Mark 12, 36, uh, Acts 1, 16, uh, Acts 28, 25 are just some of the verses that emphasize the authorship of God the Holy Spirit. Let me give those to you again. 2 Samuel 23, 2 and 3. Uh, Mark 12:36, Acts 1:16, Acts 28:25. A couple of other passages would be First uh, Thess 4, uh, 2, and Second uh, Thess 3:6, 3:12, uh, and 3:14. Also, the Holy Spirit is the one who, in the church age, helps us to understand the Word of God, but He doesn't understand it for us. He enables us, but he doesn't perform that work. We have to think about it. We have to study it. We have to exegete it. We have to break it down. We have to look at the, 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 the verbs, the subjects, the prepositions, the uh, conjunctions. We, and this is called uh, grammatical, uh, the grammatical principle of interpretation. So we have to look at the words and how, what the words mean. We have to look at the grammar and the structure and the syntax and how that's organized. And we have to look at the history and the culture behind, at the time in which it was written. So this is often referred to as the historical grammatical um, liter- literal interpretation of, uh, of Scripture. Now, when we look at the human author of Scripture, as we put our definition up here, God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture. These human writers of Scripture came from a wide variety of different backgrounds. They came from various walks of life. They had different positions in society. They came out of different cultures. Uh, I believe that that uh, from Adam to Moses, different different key people, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, wrote down certain things that were sources that Moses used under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to pull together uh, that part of Scripture, that part of the Pentateuch that he was not an eye, eyewitness to. And so he had those sources in, in front of him. 
Um, and uh, But Moses himself was Jewish, although he was raised in the household of Pharaoh and given the highest education possible at that time. And then we have Job, who wrote approximately uh, the same time, probably earlier than Moses, and he was one of the wealthiest men. He was uh, into uh, agriculture and farming, and he was raising various herds. You had others, such as Joseph, who was a former uh, slave who rose to be the right-hand man of Pharaoh, and he was the chief administrator in the Egyptian empire. You have Joshua, who is a former slave, who rose to the rank of the general and leader of the uh, the human leader of the armies of Israel. You had Amos, who was a herdsman and a uh, fig farmer. Peter was a fisherman. Paul was trained as a, as a rabbi. Daniel was a prime minister, the <clears throat> third highest position in the uh, empire of uh, the, the Neo-Caledonian Empire. Uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah were prophets. Isaiah came out of the royal family and was an aristocrat. Uh, Ezra was a priest. Luke was a physician. And um, so we have many different backgrounds, uh, over 40 writers of Scripture writing over a period of 1,600 years, and they speak about the most controversial subjects. Uh, that are topics that have ever been addressed by human beings, and yet they all agree with one another. They don't disagree. You look at any other religious book. You look at the uh, you look at the Quran. You look at the Book of Mormon. These are written by one man at one time who writes the whole thing, and uh, anybody can can sit down and write something and not contradict himself, unless of course you're a writer of scripture. And then the presupposition from those who don't believe in inerrancy is that they contradict themselves all the time because they're basically stupid because they were born before 1600. Um, but that's the arrogance of, of modern man. So you have these uh, human writers who write over a 1,500, 1,600-year period of time with no contradiction. They come from all these different backgrounds, some from Egypt, some from Israel, some from um, the Mesopotamia, some from Greece, some from uh, the area now known as Turkey, Rome, and yet they write of one mind. That's because what unifies them is the uh, God the Holy Spirit, who is the ultimate writer uh, writer of Scripture. So God the Holy Spirit writes, he supernaturally directs these human authors. That means that it's not through, um, this oversight is not through some normal means. It's not dictation. Now, there are some areas where it might be dictation, probably was when God gives the law to Moses, that would be dictation. But all of the Old Testament is, is very little is dictation, but some of it would be dictation. Most of it is not dictation. It's not some mechanical method. It is that they, these writers are sort of overshadowed by God the Holy Spirit, and they write within the framework of their own, uh, of their own personality. So they use their own vocabulary. Sometimes they use a, a secretary or an amanuensis. They use someone on their staff who writes uh, for them, and they oversee that. And this explains why there were some differences between the vocabulary and the style of, for example, First Peter and Second Peter, because uh, Silas is with Peter and is acting as his amanuensis, and so uh, there are these vocabulary differences and style differences. But Peter is the one who is making sure that everything that he that he writes down is is correct. So God the Holy Spirit supernaturally directs these human writers that without waiving their human intelligence, 
their vocabulary, their individuality, their literary style, their personality, their personal feelings, or any other human factor. Their personalities come through. You read them in the Greek. You can sense the difference between Matthew and Luke and between Paul and Peter. And so uh, those their their personality comes through and in, in their writing style, but yet what they are communicating is guaranteed to be free from error by by God the Holy Spirit. He does not obliterate their personalities, he does not obliterate their personal strengths and talents and abilities and backgrounds and vocabulary, but he uses that in communicating what God the Holy Spirit intended to communicate. We have to have a big view of this, that God the Holy Spirit knew what he wanted to have written, and so he chose the men to write what he wanted to have written. He he knew the end result from the beginning, and so he didn't choose Peter to write Romans because he knew Peter couldn't do that. But that was something that Paul could do. He, he, he chose Jude to write Jude rather than John because... Uh, Jude needed to say it in Jude's vocabulary. John was chosen to write the Gospel of John because of the way John would write it. And so the whole process from beginning to end is overseen uh, by God, by God the Holy Spirit. With the result that his complete and coherent me- message to mankind was recorded with perfect accuracy. So the message is complete. It is sufficient. God didn't forget something. There's not someone, something left out that needs to be added later on through the Quran or through the Book of Mormon. It is complete by the end of the New Testament, uh, era. And, uh, it's, so that it's more than enough for us to learn how to think biblically, to learn about every detail of life and every aspect of culture, and to apply what the Word of God says to every area of life, life, to art, to music, to literature, to law, to politics, to government. All of this can be developed from our uh, understanding of what God has revealed to us. Uh, it's a coherent message. That means there aren't any contradictions. Uh, God does not contradict himself, and the writers of Scripture did not fall off the turnip truck last week and uh, write one thing one day and something contradictory the next day. But if you read liberals, that's how they tend to look at the writers of Scripture. They'll point out, oh, well, see, see the contradiction here? Well, these men are intelligent. They're not stupid. They don't have single-digit IQs, and they're able to write something that is coherent. So if there appears to be a contradiction, it's because we lack information, not because they were stupid or incompetent. Uh, scripture tells us that it is the words are inspired by God. Every single word is chosen by God the Holy Spirit. And that means that we pay attention to why this synonym is used instead of that synonym. And it's not just a stylistic difference, but it has something to do with what the Holy Spirit is communicating. The forms of the words, their tenses, their, uh, whether it's plural or singular, these all have a significance, and we need to meditate on the passage until we can understand that significance. Now, there are some things that are done that are stylistic uh, in the original language, and uh, or at least at this point we haven't figured out what those distinctions are. But, for example, there are uh, passages in... Um, uh, in the Gospels where uh, 
one writer will use a, uh, include a definite article with the proper name of a person. He'll say the Joseph and the Mary. Uh, and other passages, it's just Joseph and Mary. We don't really believe there's any distinction between those two, and there have been those who have spent their lifetime studying the use and the use or the non-use of the article in Greek and can't answer that particular question. So I'm not saying there aren't stylistic differences, but that shouldn't be the uh, knee-jerk reaction. We see a change in vocabulary, which, oh, well, that's just stylistic. No, that should be the last uh, port of call in trying to answer these questions. Now, uh, we go on to say that uh, in the definition that it's a complete and coherent message to mankind. It's not written to angels. It's not written to animals. It's not written to any other creature. It is addressed to the human race, uh, to mankind, and it's recorded with perfect accuracy in the original languages. Now, this gets into another important issue because uh, we don't have the original. We don't have a copy of the original. We don't have a copy of a copy of a copy of the original. But we have, especially when we look at the New Testament, we have hundreds if not thousands of copies, Not maybe not complete New Testaments, but we have copies we have. And on top of that, we have quotations from the church fathers going back to the uh, end of the first century. And so by comparing these, we can see that the text really didn't change that uh, even though it's implied by people such as uh, Bart Ehrman, who is an extremely liberal antagonist to uh, the accuracy of the New Testament, and he implies by saying, well, since we don't have the original or the ori- copy of the original or copy of the copy or the copy of 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 the copy and he goes on and on and on because we don't have that, how do we know they didn't change it? Well, because we, we may not have originals or copies of the copies of the copies of the copies of the original, but we do have all of this other attestation from uh, statements that are made, quotes that are made by early church fathers to show us that, uh, and when we discover new older manuscripts, there's no change. And so there's nothing to indicate that there was a change. Now, there are some differences. There's some, uh, sometimes uh, writers left out a word. Sometimes they inserted a word. Sometimes their eyes skipped a line in copying and left a phrase out. Sometimes they duplicated a word. Uh, sometimes the dip, but most of these differences that we have in the manuscripts, 99.5% of them all have to do with spelling changes or word order changes, nothing that affects the, the meaning of, of the passage whatsoever. And, uh, sometimes we have, uh, situations where someone was writing or cop- making a copy and they inserted a word for clarification and then the next right, next copyist came along and saw that word that had been written maybe in the margin or above the line uh, and included that as part of Scripture. There are a lot of different ways in which this happens, and how to study this and understand it is the science of textual, uh, textual criticism. But uh, God the Holy Spirit uh, originated, I mean, the original documents, if you start with an inerrant document, then you can get back to it. And, and uh, Dan Wallace, even though I think that he fudges on some areas that I would disagree with, he's done some remarkable work in this. And for many years, he would take do a little experiment, come to churches and talk to them about uh, what, what the experiment was going to be and how to how to write things out and copy things. And, and then he would read a little story that he developed called The Gospel According to Snoopy. 
And what he discovered that if he took away the original and all you had was, was maybe 40 or 50 copies made by untrained copyists, the audience, that, uh, that most people got everything right. There were a few that left out a word or added a word or changed something, but it was m- very possible to reconstruct the original without having the original from the copies. And he's done this experiment uh, dozens, if not hundreds of times, to confirm this, and this is, uh, confirms exactly our view of the transmission of the text. So what we've learned from this is that the very words, because they originate with God, originate within the mind of God, God is the original uh, possessor of vocabulary. God had vocabulary from eternity past because uh, thought is expressed through words, and uh, Jesus is the eternal word of God, the logos of God, and so God is then able to communicate uh, to man, and those words bear the authority of God. They bear the authority of Scripture so that when God speaks, there's something in our soul that knows it. Now, we may suppress that in unrighteousness, or people may suppress that in unrighteousness, but they know that it is the Word of God. This is the, the Word of God. So this is what we mean by the inspiration of Scripture. And it's important to understand this and to defend this authority because uh, this gives us um, a position where we say this is what the Bible says and there's no discussion because God said it, that settles it. And now the issue is whether or not we are going to believe it. Okay, that just gets us started in terms of the basic definition and understanding, looking at a couple of Scripture texts. And then next time I'm going to come back and we're going to look at another phrase that is used to describe uh, the inspiration of Scripture, and that is the phrase, the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. This is also extremely important, and uh, I'll uh, work my way through that definition because these are these are ideas that are often not understood by people today, but if you don't get your authority and your foundation right as to where you get your information about Christianity and the faith, if that's in doubt, then everything else is in doubt. So we have to start with the confidence that we have that the Bible is the Word of God, and it has been preserved accurately, and even though we are reading it mostly in a translation, it is, for the most part, a clear accurate translation, and we can come to understand God's will for our life through his word. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be uh, challenged by your word that the foundation of the faith is your authority as revealed in your word, the scriptures, the 39 books of the Old Testament and 27 books of the New Testament. And we pray that as we continue to study in this important doctrine, you'll help us to understand uh, the significance of having your word in front of us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.